I'm glad that you're with us today. If you missed the message last week, you need to go back and listen to it on podcast, okay? And you can find our podcast uh, on our website or on iTunes, Um, but this is an amazingly powerful and important series called 90, in which we're using the 90 days leading up to Easter to talk about the life and the ministry of Jesus. In fact, if you've missed any message in this series, you can go back and catch up. It's really easy. But since I'm feeling a little benevolent today, I'm going to give you a super brief recap for those who missed. But you've got to promise me that you're going to go back and listen to the podcast. Cool? All right. So um, when, I think that when you grow up in a religious environment, it's easy to love your religion more than the people for whom the religion was given. And if you're not careful, you'll end up hurting people with the religion that was given for people. And then you wonder why people don't want to get involved with your religion, and round and round it goes. In fact, for some of you, the reason you gave up on religion or uh, that you gave up on church is because you ran into some church people who seemed to love their church and love their religion more than you. And that was just kind of odd and painful, wasn't it? And we're on a journey with the life of Jesus from the moment that he stepped onto the pages of history as an adult until the time that he gave his life as a sacrifice for sin. And the most important thing about this series in terms of tracking along with Jesus is, and I want you to understand, and I wish everyone would understand, that Jesus came to introduce something new. He did not show up to continue something old. It wasn't version 2.0 of something. Jesus came to earth to do something brand new in the world, but also for the world. He came to establish a brand new covenant or arrangement between God and all of humanity. He came to give us a brand new command that we'll talk about in a few weeks that would be the governing ethic for his brand new movement called the church. Now, where we left off last time is on this journey with Jesus, he had just revealed what his upside-down agenda for his kingdom would look like. We call it the Sermon on the Mount, but it's a sermon that Jesus gave many, many times. In fact, this was probably the core content of the message that people gathered and heard him teach. And in this message, he began to contrast himself with the laws of the area. He began to say things like, you have heard it said, but I say. You have been taught, but I say. You have heard since childhood, but I say. And his audience realized, wait a minute, you're contrasting yourself with Moses, the lawgiver, the covenant maker. It was Moses that came down from Mount Sinai with God's code for our conduct. Moses is our guy. You can't stand in contrast to Moses. You can explain what Moses taught, but you can't take away from it. And Jesus felt the tension in his audience every time he taught this content. And so he made this statement that we looked at last week. He said, now I want to be clear. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. The law and the prophets is what first and second century Jews called their scripture, their Bible. They didn't have a Bible. They had the Jewish scriptures, and it was referred to as the law and the prophets. It was essentially everything in your English Old Testament from Genesis all the way to Malachi. And Jesus said, I've not come to abolish it. But there's something about to happen. You're not imagining things. Change is coming. The tension you feel is real. I've come not to edit them. You know, I've not come to say that they're wrong, but I have come to fulfill them. If God's arrangement with ancient Israel was an assignment, Jesus said, 
I've come to complete it. If his arrangement with ancient Israel was a math problem, Jesus says, I'm here to solve it. If it was a jet plane, Jesus said, I'm here to land it. And even though it was disturbing, and even though there was so much contrast, and even though this was so different and so new, the text says that when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. But this introduced yet another issue that launches us into our discussion today. How much authority did Jesus really have? Did he really have authority to replace everything that Moses had put in place? Everything that Solomon put in place? Was he really the person they'd been waiting for all these centuries who would actually bring something brand new into the world? Well, soon after this, Jesus has a very interesting conversation with some Pharisees. And here's how it began. Matthew tells us that at that time, this is a few days later, Jesus and his guys are going through the grain fields on the Sabbath. You see, they would move from city to city and town to town. And on this particular day, they're walking through some grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pick off some of the heads of grain and eat them. Now, everywhere Jesus went, there was a crowd. And everywhere Jesus went, there was a group of Pharisees or Sadducees trying to trap Jesus and separate him from the crowd. And when the Pharisees who were walking along saw, uh, alongside Jesus uh, saw this, they said, Aha! Gotcha! We see what you're doing. Your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. We gotcha. Somebody take a picture. Wait, we don't do that yet. All right, well, somebody do a quick sketch. Well, we don't really do that either. Okay, well, somebody document this because Jesus and his guys, they're violating the Sabbath. And Jesus stops and says, okay, whoa, 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 and waits for the crowd to come closer. And he says, look, you know as well as I do that we're not breaking the Sabbath. There's nothing in the law that says that you can't break, break heads of wheat off when you're hungry. You know that. And he throws it right back at him. He says, besides, your priests work on the Sabbath. It was their version of pastor works on Sunday. You know, sometimes I meet people and, and I say, oh, I can't come to church, I work on Sundays. And I'm like, yeah, I know, me too. Anyways, so he throws it right back at them and he says, look, the priests work on Sunday. So they kind of have this little spitting match. And, he finally, and Jesus finally rears back and gives them a big overarching principle. He says, look, you're so concerned about breaking the Sabbath, you've got it all wrong. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And this was a big idea. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, couples don't have children so that there'll be somebody to play with the toys. Okay, well, maybe that's not a great illustration. It sounded really good in my mind when I was... Anyways, his point's this. You've got it all wrong. God is not more concerned about the Sabbath than he is for his people. God created the Sabbath for people. You think, this is what he was saying to them, you think God loves his law more than he loves his people? Because they did. They did what many religious people do. They fell in love with the religion until they neglected the people for whom the religion was created and to whom the religion was given. They prioritized law over people. 
And this is the essence of legalism. This is the essence of why so many people, especially people from previous generations, just walked away from the church. You can put it like this. Legalism always prioritizes a view over a you. Legalism always prioritizes a view over a you. In fact, you may have left the church because somebody in the church you grew up in prioritized the Bible over your divorced mother or your gay brother. And throughout the gospel, whenever people used the law of God to dishonor people made in the image of God, oh my goodness, Jesus was quick. He was so quick to remind them that they were on the wrong side of God. So this conversation, it goes back and forth and back and forth, and finally he brings it to an end. And Jesus lands this statement that we looked at last week that's the hinge point for where we're going today. Jesus says, look, you're so concerned about the Sabbath, you're so concerned about the law, you're so concerned about the temple, let me give you a little information. Lean in, guys. Don't let this get out. I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. Now, to compare yourself to the temple, to declare yourself greater than the temple, it might be arrogance, it might be ignorance, it might be insanity, but it is definitely blasphemy. Nothing was greater than the temple, and certainly no individual person was greater than the temple. In fact, to say that you're greater than the temple is a threat to the temple, and the threat to the temple is a threat to the nation. The Jewish population in first century Jerusalem And then in centuries to follow, they would die in order to protect that sacred piece of real estate, about 37 acres large, that housed the law of God, that God dwelled, that housed um, their worship. It was the epicenter of their entire world. Nothing was greater than the temple. And to threaten the temple is to threaten the nation. And here's a little illustration of this. Seven years after Jesus said those words, in the year 40, the citizens of Jerusalem got wind of a plot. The emperor at the time, Emperor Caligula, actually wanted to ship a statue of himself to the temple, and they were going to place that statue inside the temple walls. It was as if he was trying to pick a fight with the Jews. And Petronius, the governor of Syria at the time, was given the assignment of going to the coast with his legions and bringing the the statue back to the city of Jerusalem and placing that statue of the emperor inside the temple walls. And when he arrived at the port city in order to take possession of the statue, he was met with thousands and thousands of Jews. And when he threatened violence, instead of fighting back, they went to their knees and they pulled down their cloaks, exposing their necks, to, and, and they exposed them to Roman blades, and they said, we will die before we allow you to desecrate our temple. Petronius eventually made his way to Tiberias, and when he got to Tiberias, there were larger crowds. In fact, the first century Jewish historian Josephus says this, the Jewish people threw themselves down upon their faces, stretched out their necks, and said, We are ready to be slain. And they did this for 40 days. Farmers went on strike. The economy was in jeopardy. And Petronius didn't know what to do. It was a stalemate. And this would not simply be armed conflict. This would be genocide. And so he wrote a letter to the emperor asking for advice, knowing that his failure to deliver the statue would probably not only cost him his job, 
It would cost him his life. But he didn't know what to do. And then, in a twist of fate, while the letter was on its way to Rome, Roman senators conspired with Roman guards to have Caligula assassinated. And the crisis was averted. And Jesus tells us, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. This was impossible. There was nothing greater than the temple. Besides, this was the second temple. This was Herod's temple. The first temple, Solomon's temple, had been destroyed in about 586 B.C. And the Jewish people were expelled from the city. The Babylonians carted off the treasure from the temple and then carted off some of the best and the brightest people in the city as well. In fact, they took the Fab Four, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel. And some years later, the Persian emperor allowed the people to return to the city. Cyrus the Great said, you can go back to your city and you can rebuild your temple, but you can't build it as glorious as it was before. I want a little econo temple. And and I want you to feel good about yourselves, but I don't want you to feel too good about yourselves. In fact, some people were in the audience when they opened up the econo temple who remembered Solomon's temple. And the text tells us that they wept because it was not near as grand and glorious as the first. 20 years before Jesus is born, Herod the Great goes to the Jews of the city of Jerusalem and he says, I would like to build you a temple to its former glory. I would like to build you a magnificent temple. And they negotiated back and forth until finally they gave him permission. So 20 years before Jesus shows up, the temple's rebuilt and it's extraordinary. Here's a model of what the temple looked like in those days. These walls, in some places, were over 100 feet high. This is about 37 acres of stone. The temple structure itself, about 60 feet high, but the thing that made it an ancient wonder of the architectural world was that the entire temple uh, was built on this plaza. Um, It was made out of cut stone. And some of these stones were 11 by 16 by 44 feet long. Some of the stones in this building weighed over 500 tons. This was an area where earthquakes were frequent. Herod built an earthquake-proof temple for the Jews. (laughs) Something greater than the temple, Jesus? I don't think so. So one afternoon, Jesus and his guys are in the temple plaza. And they're leaving, and they're going down the southern stairs and walking back. And as they're leaving, one of the Jesus guys turns and he looks over his shoulder at the temple and he says, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. As many times as they've been there, it was one of those things that you just can't help but marvel at. And every time you see it, you just can't get over the size of the foundation stones for the temple. Every time they saw it, it's like, how in the world did they get stones this large? How in the world did they transport them to this mount? How in the world did they get it up there? It was just overwhelming. So they pause once more to marvel at this extraordinary structure. And Jesus stops, and he looks back with them. And what comes next should make you sit up straight. And what follows, if you're not a follower of Jesus, for whatever reason, Maybe you had a bad church experience or, you know, there's something about the six-day creation or how did they get all those animals on the ark? I mean, I understand those are challenges. But I just want you to lock in for just a minute because I bet you haven't heard this before. 
In fact, what I'm about to say is so extraordinary, I would love for you to fact check me because what happens next is really epic. Jesus says, guys, you see all these great buildings? They say, sure, Jesus. Not one stone, these fabulous stones that we wonder how they even carved them, much less transported them, much much less got them to this place. Not one stone will be left on another. Every one will be, and here's an interesting Greek term here, it doesn't mean fall down. It means exactly what it says in the English. Every one of these stones will be thrown down into the valley below the base of the walls of the plaza. And they're like, okay, so where's the punchline? Like, what? In other words, Jesus was saying, look, don't be too impressed. It's a teardown. Now, the problem was this. This was impossible. You couldn't tear down Herod's temple. It's impossible. An earthquake may crack a foundation here and there. You may have to repair a wall, but even an earthquake couldn't throw down all the stones of the temple off the plaza into the valley below. There was only one force in the world powerful enough to do that, and that would be the Roman army. And the Roman army is not about to destroy Herod's temple. Herod works for Rome, and Herod's the one who built the temple to keep the Jews quiet and peaceful. I mean, Jesus, maybe we misunderstood, but this isn't just disturbing. This is impossible. In fact, if this happened, it would be apocalyptic. It would be the end. The end of the temple is the end of the world as we know it, and we will not feel fine. Right? Nobody got that. It's the end of the world as we know it. I feel fine. Man, REM? All right, next week, music lessons. So, they make their way down into the valley, and they make their way up to the Mount of Olives. And his guys are so disturbed by this. It's like, hey, Jesus, we remember that you said that you're greater than the temple, okay? That was weird. You're greater than the temple. And now you're telling us that this building is going to somehow come tumbling down all the way into the valley below? So later, as Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, he took a break. Opposite the temple, with this panoramic view of the city and the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew went to him privately. They just had to know. They just couldn't let things hang there. This was too big of a deal. And they said to him, tell us, when will these things happen? And so he did. In fact, I would love for you, you know, today, tomorrow, sometime soon, find yourself a Bible. Download the YouVersion app on your phone. Maybe dust off your grandma's Bible. Find yourself a Bible and go to Matthew chapter 24. Or go to Mark chapter 13 or Luke chapter 21 and read what Jesus says about the days when this would happen. He said, when this takes place, you will see an army surrounding the city. And when you see the army surrounding the city, you'll know that the destruction of the city is about to happen. You should leave the city. You should take as much as you can. Woe unto the pregnant woman. Pray that your wife is not pregnant these days. Pray that there are no nursing mothers in these days. Men will die by the sword. They will pray for mercy. They will pray to die. It will be so extraordinary when what I predicted takes place. He wasn't apologetic. Jesus didn't say, oh, I was speaking figuratively. He wasn't really nostalgic. uh, you know. But when you read how he described what would happen, clearly he was heartbroken and he was disturbed. But he 
was not exaggerating. But if that were to happen, the world as they knew it would literally come to an end. And 40 years later, that's exactly what happened. After years of battling, Jewish gangs that had created an uprising against Rome had won a giant victory over the Roman legion. And they thought, oh, we can expel Rome. And their one victory gave them the momentum they needed to begin raising armies all over Galilee and Judea. The citizens were scared to death. They knew this probably would not end well. But the young men felt like, this is our time. We can rise up and we can conquer Rome. And then the Rome sent in the 10th Legion and others. And they began to herd the Jewish rebels from Galilee all the way down south, and eventually they rounded them up in the city of Jerusalem. They built up a stone wall all the way around the city. And by this time, Vespasian, who started this war, had gone on to be emperor and left his son Titus in charge. And early, as they began to build siege works around the city, thousands and thousands of Jewish people began to make their way towards the city initially. And the Roman emperor said, no, 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 um, or sorry, the Roman army said, no, don't let them enter the city. And Vespasian said, no, open the gates and allow them to come in. Accompany them into the city, and once they're all in, seal it because their food supply will uh, fade out quicker that way. And what happens inside the city was horrible. They fought with the Romans by day, and they fought with each other by night. The grain stores caught fire uh, during one of their internal skirmishes, and they were so sure that they were going to expel the Romans that they began fighting with each other for who would be king of Israel. And then on August 6th, A.D. 70, the second wall was breached. The 10th Legion went into the city and killed everything that couldn't be sold into slavery. They burned everything that would burn in the temple, and then they literally, fact check me, they literally dragged every single stone used to build the temple off the ledge of the plaza and dumped it into the valley below to say, this is the end of Judaism. In fact, today, you can go to the southwestern corner of the temple and see some of the stones for yourself. It was never rebuilt. On that day, ancient Judaism died, never to be resurrected, just as Jesus predicted. Well, this is what it looks like today, and you've probably seen pictures of this. Around 700 A.D., Muslims came and built the Dome of the Rock. It was a place where Jewish people and Muslim people could take a a pilgrimage. And they built those mosques. It's called the Al-Aqsa Mosque around 700. It wasn't this size then. An earthquake destroyed it, so they rebuilt it. And then another earthquake destroyed that, and so they rebuilt um, it to this size. And then in 1099, the Crusades retook the city and they turned the mosque into a church. And then 88 years later, Saladin came and retook the city for the Muslims and turned it back into a mosque. Rabbinic Judaism was born, but ancient Sinai Judaism was never resurrected, just as Jesus predicted. Not one stone will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. Now, I'm going to depart from the story for just a minute because what I want to explain next is a bit complicated, but it is oh so important. 
When all of Jesus' first century original followers died due to martyrdom, the next group of people that stepped in are what we refer to as the church fathers. And the church fathers were quick to do exactly with what I'm doing today. The church fathers were quick to say, aha, it happened just the way as Jesus predicted. Jesus is who he claimed to be. How in the world can someone predict something so epic, so cataclysmic? They said, Jesus predicted it, and it happened. But the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, don't do that. And the question that we have to wrestle to the ground is this. How could they resist expounding on such an extraordinary phenomenon? How could they resist adding to their text something like this? And so it came about, just as Jesus said it would. Because if you read the Gospels carefully, you see this all the time. Throughout the Gospels, they'll say, Jesus said, but the disciples didn't understand it at the time. They remembered later. Later they understood. They constantly expounded because they were looking back on the life of Jesus, writing about what he said and what he did. And then they would interpret what he said and what he did because they were on the other side of the crucifixion and the resurrection. So why in the world wouldn't Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, I mean, how could they resist saying, oh my goodness, it happened just as he said it would? Especially when you read the detail that Jesus gives in Luke chapter 21 and in Matthew and in Mark. So why not leverage this? Why not say, see there, I told you so. Well, here's the answer. And this should make you sit up straighter or it should make you fall on your face and declare Jesus as your Lord. Because when the gospel of Mark was written, the temple was still standing. That's why Mark didn't say it. When the gospel of Matthew was written, the temple was still standing. And that's why Matthew didn't say, and sure enough, it happened. When Matthew was written, he included Jesus' prediction, but he didn't include the fulfillment of the prediction because it hadn't happened yet. When the Gospel of Luke was written, Luke had said, I have thoroughly investigated all these things so that you would have an orderly account of, of what the life of Jesus looked like, what he taught, and what he did. When the Gospel of Luke was written, the temple was still standing. And my friends, here's the problem. When you were in school and you heard something to the contrary, or you were on the internet and you read some information to the contrary. The reason you were told the Gospels were written, not by eyewitnesses, but by people who wrote many generations afterwards, is this very prediction. Because if Jesus predicted the fall of Jerusalem with the detail that he gives us, and it was not written in after the fact, my friends, it is indisputable evidence that Jesus is worth following. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John didn't include it because it didn't happen yet. But it happened just as Jesus said it would. It's the most verifiable prophecy ever given anywhere by anybody. Again, Jesus said, not one stone will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. And it looks as if the only reason Jesus stopped to share this with his guys was because they marveled at the temple. Because they asked him, and when you read it, Jesus isn't happy about it. He isn't gleeful or vindictive. Jesus isn't, see there, when this happens, everybody's going to know who I'm cl I claim to be. There's none of that. His heart was broken because 
These were his people. And they would suffer in a way that is unimaginable to our modern senses. But Jesus was clear. The days of temple sacrifice, the days of animal sacrifice, the days of God's covenant with the nations of, of Israel is coming to an end and it will be replaced by something new and something improved and something universal and something portable. 20 years later, while the temple was still standing, 20 years after Jesus gave this prediction, the Apostle Paul, the ex-temple-loving, Christian-persecuting Pharisee, writes to pagans, ex-pagans in Corinth, who had their own temple experience. And he tells them these astounding words that we miss because we've never been temple people. And here's what he said. Do you not know that your bodies, and this is a game changer, that your bodies, your physical bodies are temples? Something's changed. Something new has come. That your physical bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, the very Spirit that inhabited the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem. That building that he could have said that is still standing is no longer inhabited by the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit has left the building and inhabits the hearts of men and inhabits the hearts of women. You've been inhabited by the Holy Spirit who was in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. The significance is lost on us, but it is loaded with implications for first century pagans and first century Jews. And here are the implications. With the arrival of Jesus, sacred has been commuted. There are no more sacred objects. There is no more sacred geography. There are no more sacred sites. There are only sacred individuals, sacred people. The message of the gospel, the message of Jesus, the new message that he came to introduce, not for a group of people, but for the world, is this. That you are seated beside sacred. That you married sacred. That you are raising sacred. You go to school with sacred. You go to work with sacred. The stage was set for Jesus. The stage was set for the upending of all society. The seeds were sown for the end of slavery. The seeds were sown for the dignity of all humanity, men and women alike. Because there is an inseparable link between the message of Jesus and human freedom. Because there is a link between the message of Jesus, between human dignity and the cross. The price he paid to declare the worth of every single person who has walked the face of the planet. And there's an inseparable link between the teachings of Jesus and your value, your worth, your intrinsic dignity. I tell you, Jesus said, something greater than the temple is here. And it was. Something greater than temple had come to the world and for the world. And then, as he predicted, the temple came down along with temples all over the Roman Empire. For the light and the love of God had been released and manifest to the world and for the world. 
And here's where this intersects with you. And here's where this intersects with me. Jesus' original invitation still stands. And as powerful as it was before the temple came down, how much more powerful is it now? That invitation now. Before the resurrection, this invitation was extended. How much more significant is it that it's extended to us today after the resurrection? And the invitation is simply this. Follow me. Follow me and you will find life that is truly life. Follow me and you will find abundant life. Follow me and you will find meaning in life. Follow me and you will find fearless life. Follow me and you will find life placed within the bookends of eternity. And you'll never be the same. And you'll never see the same again. And follow me, not because of faith. Follow me because I have demonstrated myself faithful. And follow me because I have given you more than enough evidence to know that I am who my heavenly Father sent to pay for your sins, to bring up there, down here, and to help you establish a relationship with your heavenly Father. Follow me. Why wouldn't you do that? Why would you resist that? Why would you fear that? Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, indeed you are who you say you are, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Prince of Peace, our Lord and our Savior. Thank you for bringing dignity and worth to the lives of every human being, men and women alike. May we leave here today understanding that you are inhabited, that we are inhabited by your spirit, that the Holy Spirit has left the building and now dwells in us. May we live our lives that reflect your beauty, goodness, and truth. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Uh, well, at this time, I would like to invite our ushers to come forward as we prepare for our morning offering. Um, Brian gave a little note in the beginning of our time together that uh, we'd love for you to fill out that Connect card and drop that in the offering basket. It's our way of uh, knowing that you're here. Um, there's also a space on there for you to list prayer requests, uh, anything that you'd like to celebrate uh, because we are a church that likes to pray for and with people. And so, um, I hope that you do that. And this time of offering is a way to um, uh, celebrate our act of worship to God by giving back just a portion of what God has given to you. And so uh, we are invited as followers of Jesus to do it with a glad and a joyful heart um, because we get to celebrate the many wonderful things that happens with our offerings uh, to bless people um, that we know and bless people that we're not going to meet until we get to the other side of eternity. Um, but your offerings are doing a good work and uh, helping to build God's kingdom here on earth. And so um, I pray that you do it uh, with joy and generosity. And so let me pray, and we'll continue. Oh, gracious God, I am just blown away by um, how much you love us, uh, how hard you fight for us, 
how much you want us near you. God, uh, there are a lot of things that can come in the way of our relationship with you, our busyness, our hurriedness, distraction, greed, vainglory, all sorts of brokenness and sin. God, I just pray that you would remove those things from our life. Help us to cooperate with you in that process so that we can follow you with every area of our life. Thank you so much for uh, the work that you have already done in us. And I pray for the work that you are doing right now and that you'll continue to do. May we be conformed to the image of your son, Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.